Welcome to the May Contain Wine Podcast, brought to you by Wine, Women, and Wellbeing. I'm your host, Lisa Webb, and together we're going to get to know incredible women doing all kinds of interesting things. So grab a glass and get ready to be inspired by the amazing women in our global community. Hello, my friends. Today I am here with Shaylin Taylor. She is deeply passionate about inclusion and owning the parts of ourselves that make us unique. Shaylin was given a 12-year life expectancy and has gone from planning her funeral to planning a future. Shaylin now works as a public speaker and diversity model while documenting life with a disability. Hello, Shay. How are you? Hello, I'm great. So excited to be here with you today. I love that you're here with us today. Um, what a story you have. What a journey. Can you tell us a little bit more about yourself? For sure. So um, when I was 18 months old, I was diagnosed with a genetic condition called spinal muscular atrophy. Um, I was diagnosed with type 2 and my family was told there was no treatment, no cure to take me home and love me that no matter what they did, um, my disease would continue to progress. And so I truly grew up in a family that like made the most of every moment. I knew the reality of my disease and that my life expectancy was 12, but it was never like a depressing part of our family's life. It was just an excuse to make all the memories we could and be together a bunch. And so as I kind of grew up and grew to accept what my disability looked like and got past my life expectancy, um, it definitely took a mindset shift for me to be able to push forward in my life. And so when I was about 22 years old, I was seeing a counselor. Counseling is something I've done my whole life since I was like 10 years old. And I was saying how out of control I felt with my body, that my disease was taking over, my doctor's appointments were getting more and more depressing, and I just felt completely out of control. And I knew that when I got to the point um, of my disease taking over my body, I would no longer be able to speak or breathe or communicate with anything other than my eyes, but my brain would never be affected. And so I really struggled a lot with trying to imagine what life would be like, unable to communicate, but fully cognitive and wanting to do so. Um, And so with my counselor, we came to the conclusion that a way for me to make sure that what my wants and desires were um, was for me to plan my own funeral. Mm -hmm. And so at 22 years old, my best friend, 22. I was in university. I was living away from home because I wanted to make the most of while I was healthy. Um, And so at 22, my best friend and I planned my funeral. And it truly was something that gave me some control back in my life and made me feel like what I wanted and what was important to me was communicated when I could no longer communicate. Not six months after planning my own funeral, there was an announcement that the first ever treatment for SMA had been approved by the FDA. And so began a whole battle of me trying to access treatment and deciding how badly I wanted to live and what I was willing to do to get access to this treatment. Um, Long story short, we ended up having to fundraise $400,000 
for me to access four doses of the treatment. And the reason I purchased the four doses of treatment was because I had found a clinical trial for a new treatment for SMA based in New York. But the only way I would qualify for this free treatment trial was if I had had four doses of the first medication. And so I battled the hospital system, I battled the government, I couldn't get funding, couldn't get any movement, was running out of time to qualify for the trial. And so my community came together and both Musha, Saskatchewan, where I grew up, and Calgary, Alberta, where I now call home, came together and raised nearly $400,000 to save my life and to give me a future. And so I now had this dilemma of having accepted death, having accepted that I would not have a future, I would not be married, have kids, a career. I had come to a point of acceptance with all of that and peace with it. And suddenly I was on treatment that they didn't know how well it would work. They didn't know how much it would change my life expectancy, but I was seeing babies who were on it and they were showing no symptoms of SMA. They were walking, they were running when pre-treatment, they would already be in a wheelchair. And so I just trusted that this drug could save my life. And I knew that when I started taking it, if I went into it thinking, I don't know what this is going to do for me. I don't know if it's even going to work. It probably won't save my life. I knew if I went into it like that, that it wasn't going to work and I wasn't going to get better. And so with the help of friends, um, I learned to like thank my medicine every day before I took it and to be grateful for it and to manifest what it could do for me. And that is truly how I got to this point where I'm now 26 years old, planning a future, building a career. And I went from a funeral. And so it has totally shifted my perspective on life. Um, my values, all those kinds of things. But at the end of the day, I'm still living with a terminal disease. And so it's that constant balance between believing for myself that I have a future, that I will get healthier and stronger and continue to regain abilities I'd lost while also balancing the realism and knowing that my body is working against me, that I am the oldest adult who's been on this drug for the longest. And so I truly am the data. Mm -hmm. So I have no, no clue what the future holds, but I've chosen to go from funeral planning and the gloom of it to the future planning and the trust in better days. I mean, the people listening can't see me, but you, you could see me while we were, while you're telling that story. And I'm just like, my jaws down, my eyes are watery. Like, I just think that, well, I, I think a lot of things about that. And clearly it's taken you a lot of work mentally, physically to get where you are today. We can go into that a little bit later, but I want to rewind a little bit to growing up because, um, I'm a teacher. I've worked in elementary schools, worked in junior high, I have two kids of my own and growing up can be hard for kids that don't have any challenges whatsoever for, I will call like my kids are very privileged 
And they have days where it's hard to go to school. Like kids can be rough. What did that look like for you? Um, at what point were were you in a wheelchair? And what did that look like to transition into as part of your normal everyday life? <clears throat> so I definitely struggled a lot with it as a kid. I didn't think I didn't think it was that bad, but the kids really made me aware of how different I was. Um, so I walked until I was six years old. And then I entered grade one with the ability to still stand and take a few steps. And by grade two, I was in a wheelchair full time. And so I'm grateful that those happened when I was so young because I really don't remember Mm -hmm. the emotional toll of losing those abilities. And I'm grateful for that. Um, But it definitely was challenging. Missing school for doctor's appointments, surgeries, um, I missed four months of my grade eight year because I had a 14 hour spinal surgery and was just so annoyed that I couldn't be like the other kids and definitely struggled with my mental health, which was why I started um, counseling. But I would have kids tell me that I didn't deserve a wheelchair. I deserved to crawl on the floor. Or mm-hmm. I had kids tell me that I was the grandma in the class because only grandmas use wheelchairs. And that bullying would continue on to my friends. So people who were friends with me because they were friends with me would get bullied for it as well. Um, My best friend who I'm still best friends with, in grade eight, people pushed her down the stairs and told her then she could be like her best friend. And kids can be awful. And so then as I progressed into high school, it was like, My friends were getting driver's licenses. They were all carpooling to school. They were going to each other's houses. And those were all reminders of how different I was. And I definitely struggled it, um, struggled with it. I attempted suicide in grade 10, um, truly believing I couldn't have an independent life. I couldn't do the things I wanted to do. As a little kid, I wanted to be a mom and I wanted to have a great job and I wanted to travel. And it just was becoming more and more apparent how difficult all those things were going to be. And I think I didn't think I had the strength in me to do that. And so they were very hard years going to school. And my teachers saw my struggle through my essays and my poetry. And it was truly like a community who helped me to see my value and to see my worth. And it got to a place in my small town where everyone knew me, everyone believed I could do whatever I wanted to do. And I was so empowered there. And then I moved away for university. And that was when I was like re-slapped in the face with how society treats people with disabilities, how we're seen than less than, we fight harder for a job, we fight harder for a spot on the bus all the things yeah um and it was challenging but i knew that the only way with my personality that i would like push myself to figure out this life was if i moved far away from my parents so when i was 18 and graduated i left saskatchewan and i moved all the way to vancouver and i lived there for a year and i had never had caregivers other than my mom that was my next question like how did that actually happen like how did you do that It was absurd. I had to learn how to manage my own care team, how to train them, how to make my care into a schedule and not just something that came up as needed. 
Um, I had to learn how to balance university. And when I had breezed through high school with marks, my marks weren't like that once I hit a big university. And then a bout of pneumonia came and I had to navigate the hospital alone and illness alone. And there were so many times, like I truly thank my mom for this because I would call and be like, I just want to move home. I just want to move home. And it was my mom who was like, you can do this. You can figure it out. You're always welcome home. We would love to have you home. And I think my mom grieved a lot losing kind of her main purpose in life was taking care of me and keeping me healthy and letting me do all the things I wanted to do. And so not only was she grieving that loss, but I was grieving and wanting to come home. But somehow she still just kept saying, you can do this. You know, you can do it. This is the path to the life you want. The and mom in me is just over here bawling because I'm like, that must have been so hard as a mom, like hurting for you that you're hurting, but also like she's struggling because you're not there, but she wants to give you your independence. Like what a place to be in. It was crazy. And my parents are both teachers. Um, and so my mom is works with all the disabilities in the school. So she makes sure everything's accessible, everything's inclusive, um, getting kids incorporated into the classroom. And so that was really how she approached my whole life. And then my dad was a high school teacher. And so he was always just like, you can do anything. Like I've seen kids who didn't think they would be anything and they graduate and they're CEOs and they're all these things. And they just, put in my head that I could be more. And I am so grateful for that because instead of coddling me and being protective of me and clinging on to me while I had a terminal diagnosis, um, they let me live my life and learn and learn from life and people and the world. And so I graduated university with a criminal justice degree and a minor in sociology. And I worked in probation for two years and it was the dark side of life and it pulled me down. And when I was battling my mindset every day, I couldn't be around that kind of energy. Mm -hmm. It was draining and it was taking a toll on my physical strength. And so trying to find that balance of what I'm passionate about, but able to do without pushing my body past its limits. And sociology really opened me up to breaking down how the world views things how we've done things forever and the the pressure to change but also the pressure against change and that's when i decided that i wanted to start public speaking and i wanted to start helping other people who have disabilities to reshift their mind and find that happiness that independence that place in life where they're content despite their disability. And it's just bloomed into me learning more about myself, me accepting parts of myself I'd blocked forever and just authentically sharing my life. When all through high school, I pretended I wasn't as disabled as I was. I hid all the care I needed. I hid the help I needed because I was embarrassed of it and ashamed of it. and. For my friends who've been with me since elementary school, um, they say now I am myself. And before everything was between pursed lips because I was working so hard to upkeep this image of someone who wasn't disabled. 
and the power that came from accepting my disability is something I couldn't have dreamed of. I what thought, a beautiful place that is to be now. Right. So let's talk about, so you were, you were in dark places, obviously, and it's probably an ongoing struggle to maintain that mindset, that balance in mental health. What do you do? How do you get through the hard days? Because I'm sure there are still hard days. There definitely are. I mean, just last week I had a home care assessment They told me I don't qualify for more care hours, which means I have no way to go to the bathroom most of the day. And like, which is something that most people take for granted so much that just you saying that I'm like, yes, like these are, we just have no idea. No. And it's, it's partially because our community has to share. We have to be vulnerable enough to educate, to empower our community and the people around us to see us as equals. And, but yeah, when those kind of days happen and I'm told maybe you should start wearing a diaper, even though I know when I need to go to the bathroom, I just physically don't have the ability. And so those kinds of days are my dark days. They're the days where I go, I should move home. I can't physically do living alone. And then honestly, not the best coping strategy, but I book a trip. Because when I travel, I feel like I'm proving the world wrong. Airports aren't made for people with disabilities. My chair goes in the baggage compartment of an airplane and is usually damaged, making me unable to go anywhere on the trip. And it's like $40,000. But I choose to keep doing it because I really think that every time I travel and get to the destination and get to the place where I can just meditate and forget about disability for a minute because I'm with people the whole time who can take care of me. That is my recharge. That is my reminder that I do have care so that when I'm feeling bitter and like I'm not cared for, like a basic human need, um, those are my recharge moments. And so I've been all over. And it started as my parents making memories with me. It started as us making memories, but it taught me how to travel. And now Hawaii, Palm Springs, so many places like that are like my retreat and my break from disabled life. The weather's nice enough that I'm not stuck in the house because of snow and my body's not in pain because of the cold. And it's just, I can swim, I can walk in the water. And so those kind of moments away from the heavy of life are what keeps me diving into the tough days. And so, yeah, I don't have a great answer. I think it's an ongoing battle to keep your mindset in the right place. It's focusing on gratitude, it's meditation, it's manifesting and believing that something better is coming. Um, But at the end of the day, it's really just being content with who you are and being authentic, that is where that kind of peace comes from. So you're doing a little bit of modeling and um, a little bit of modeling, some speaking, influencing. Did you ever see this coming? Never. (laughs) I always said I didn't want my life to be my disease because so much of my life is my disease. And so I was very firm that I wanted a career in something that was not about my disease, where I could just do my job like everyone else. And 
I then realized that that wasn't my sole purpose. My sole purpose was to share my disease, to share my life and to accept my disease, which working a career where I don't have to think about it, I can continue to bury down so many of those emotions. And so it's been amazing for me. It means I can book work around my doctor's appointments, my surgeries. Um, I can work with people who are understanding that some days I can't get out of bed and do the work I owe them and they get it. Um, But truly the one I didn't ever expect was modeling. And when I started um, doing photo shoots, like my grad photo shoot in grade 12, I didn't want any photos in my wheelchair. I made us find chairs and tree stumps and steps and so many things I could sit on that weren't my wheelchair because I didn't want it in the pictures. I wanted me. And it wasn't until I did a boudoir shoot in my wheelchair. And even that shoot, I said, I don't want any pictures in my wheelchair. Thank you. I was like, I don't want pictures in my wheelchair. Like I want it to be me. I want them out of my chair. And finally, the photographer was like, can I take one of you in your chair? And that photo changed my life. I could see me, authentically me, and the person I was and my wheelchair. It wasn't just my wheelchair that stood out. And so now to start modeling and working with other brands and doing multiple photo shoots in my wheelchair, I never would have, I never would have thought that high school me would be in a place where I had accepted my body, my appearance, what my disease has done to my body enough that I could go be in front of a camera and feel confident. But But I think that's the most beautiful thing, isn't it? Like that's when true beauty shines. When you're, when you're owning who you are and people see that, that's when we shine. Exactly. Exactly. It's completely, um, and my life has changed since I've owned who I am. The possibilities are endless for me now compared to the limiting beliefs I had when I didn't. And yeah, I just, I just really believe that I am following my purpose now and that diversity representation matters. Mm-hmm. And after growing up, never seeing anyone in a wheelchair on the TV and advertising and movies, the only wheelchair portrayals in movies were heartbreaking shows like me before you or the fault in our stars or where people are dying there was always someone dying and i just wanted to see people in wheelchairs living i wanted that example in the media on the runway in advertising and that's what i'm working for now and i truly think that the kids to come with disabilities their confidence their outlook on life their acceptance of themselves will change with proper representation. And that there probably isn't more important work than that. Like that is that stepping into your calling. So congratulations to you for being strong enough to do that. Thank you. Is there one thing that you would want people to know able-bodied people, or I don't know, am I, do I say the word, yeah, that's like, like, teach me, teach me now, please. Yeah. Um, okay people who have, who don't have people with disability in their life or who don't have, who don't know someone in a wheelchair and maybe they haven't been exposed to that. What do you want them to know? I think honestly, the one thing I've seen most in my life is that we need to be approached with some compassion because it's easy to go, oh, you didn't show up for work today. Oh, this is, this issue is here. But 
when they approach me with compassion and come from a place of what's been going on in your life? Are you okay? It, it changes the game from me being defensive and feeling like I'm failing because of my disability to me feeling understood and accepted for what my body does and how it works. Um, and so, yeah, I really think just approaching disability with some compassion and an effort to learn, to educate yourself on what their life looks like, what little things may make their day a million times easier. And some little things that people like wouldn't even think of is like grocery shopping. Like if people live near me and they're at the grocery store, it means the world when they go, is there anything you need picked up? Because I can't just get in my vehicle and drive to the grocery store. Right. Or like cooking meals. I can't cook for myself. And so there'll be weeks at a time where I haven't had a home cooked meal, but that's part of my decision to be independent is that I don't get that anymore. So little things like that, I think people aren't aware of and don't no, realize. No, you wouldn't be. You wouldn't be. Wouldn't cross your mind. No. Unless you're privy to it, unless you've put yourself in a place to learn and unless people like you put a light on it and tell us and help us learn. So thanks totally. for doing that, Shay. Thank you so much for having me and for giving a space for disability to be talked about authentically. Um, the world needs more, more people that are willing to hear the perspective of people with disabilities. And I really appreciate it. Oh, well, I love that you hear, but I'm not done with you yet, my friend. We're going to do some rapid fire. Are you ready? Oh, I'm ready. Okay. If you could sit down, have a glass of wine, have a conversation with one woman, living or dead, who would you sit down with? I would sit down with Judy Human, and she is a disability rights activist. She's still alive, and she created the ADA in America. She, in her wheelchair, sat outside the government for days, days without care, without the ability to go to the washroom, without food. They disconnected the power of her group of people petitioning for accessibility rights. So they couldn't charge their devices. They couldn't power their breathing machines as they were fighting for their rights. And I would truly love to just speak with her and hear how she had that fire and that fight to fight for our rights because she did so much work, but that is still not enough. And in Canada, we have no legal guidelines for accessibility for inclusion. There is no legal legal foundation. Whereas because of Judy in the US, they have the American Disabilities Act and Americans with disabilities have rights. And so I would love to meet with her and find out how to change that in Canada as well. Yes, I wanna go with you. Yes. <laughs> Let's manifest that, shall we? We shall. Uh, what is your go-to well-being or self-care practice? Oh, meditation. Um, not having physical abilities, my brain really has to be healthy. And I have to be both in tune with my body to know if it's ill, if like what's going on, but also be able to be in tune with my work and make a living. And so meditation is my go-to to keep my brain calm, focused, 
um, and yeah, able to take on my life each day. Absolutely. Favorite book or podcast recommendation? Oh, so here's my trouble. There's not a lot of disability podcasts and it's been a, the the problem with me is I'm like, do I want to be a politician? Do I want to be a podcaster? Do I want to be a speaker? I would do it all because there's a need, but um, I would say that my favorite book that changed the game for me um, was Girl, Wash Your Face by Rachel Hollis. Oh, I know the one. That one really helped me. And a presenter who's truly helped me is Jodi Carrington. I um, cried big tears after her presentation at Manifest. And I truly felt seen. And that was something I hadn't felt for very long. And so learning from her now and her lead on just loving humans, regardless of their abilities, um, she's been a game changer. Mm -hmm. She's pretty special. She is. What does sisterhood mean to you? Mm -hmm. Sisterhood means no competition. It means um, calling out the good parts of a person encouraging, uplifting, making sure that they never feel alone, but that they also feel like they're capable of anything. And I have been lucky to have some sisters like that. I know you're close with Jessica Olstad also, and she has been that. Um, From the time I met her in the hospital with Lewiston, who had the same disease as me, she became my sister here. And I, I wouldn't be here without her. And the other community of women here in Calgary, um, they make me believe anything's possible still. And that is invaluable. Some pretty badass babes around you for sure. There are. (laughs) Okay. Last one. What advice would you give to your 16 year old self? Oh, I would tell my 16 year old self that life is so beautiful. It's not sad. It's not depressing. It's full of experiences and memories and amazing people and that I want to be here. Even though at 16, I didn't think I did. I want to be here. I want to be alive and I want to be sharing my life and educating and that it doesn't have to be so hard, that life will change and you will get to a point where you love your life. Shay, thank you so much for being vulnerable, for sharing, for teaching us, and um, for showing up as yourself. Thank you so much, Lisa. Can you tell everyone where to find you? So you can find me on Instagram. It's at Shaylin Taylor. Um, I also have my website, shaylintaylorspeaking.com, where you can reach out um, as well. And I truly just love meeting my community. I love hearing the people I've helped or hearing from people who need help. um, All of it just means so much. Okay. Keep spreading the word. You're doing amazing, important work. Thank you. So are you, Lisa. Thanks for listening, friends. If you like what you've heard, subscribe and recommend us to a friend. Head to winewomenwellbeing.com to find out more about what our community is all about and reach out to us on social media. We'd love to connect. Until next time, stay classy, stay kind.